Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. In a change to the normal introduction, I want today to ask you a favour. The podcast has gained a very loyal following, with downloads and listeners well above average, and it's even been added to the National Sound Archive at the British Library. It would be wonderful if more people got to hear about the podcast, and you can help by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Nearly 42% of all of the 31,000 downloads so far have come from Apple, and leaving a rating and review there really helps the podcast gain traction and visibility, and it really helps reach a wider and bigger audience. I'd appreciate your help, and thank you for being such loyal listeners. Today, I conduct a conversation with a Scottish conductor who's guest conducted all over the world and had title positions in both the Netherlands and the UK. He's probably better known as being one of the most successful and frequently played composers writing today. It's a great pleasure to welcome Sir James McMillan. James, it's wonderful to see you and meet you and speak with you today. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. It's great to join you. Good. Um, I suspect we're going to have a lot to talk about um, because of the two strands, obviously, you're composing, but also you're conducting. So I'm going to go right back because I don't know how music first came into your life. Uh, I don't actually know at all what if whether you studied an instrument uh, and if so, what it was. So when did mm -hmm. music first happen for you as a child? It happened when... Uh... The peripatetic music teacher brought in a bunch of uh, little wooden recorders mm. and handed them out to her primary five class or whatever. Um, it's the kind of thing that happened and maybe still does happen uh, up and down the country in the United Kingdom. Um, it's Sometimes it's uh, a, a young person's first encounter with music making at mm -hmm. school. Um, it's not the seismic moment for most British school kids that it was for me, but it was a very important moment. And I, I developed a facility quite quickly. But more importantly, on looking back at it, it, it triggered something. And my desire to write music uh, came almost simultaneously, I think, with wanting to play mm. uh, and, and being given something to play. Um, my, my parents weren't musicians, but my mum had studied piano at school and uh, she'd, became, she'd been kind of forced into it by her father, I suppose, and she didn't have the enthusiasm that he wanted for her. Uh, so when I came along, who did show immediate enthusiasm, enthusiasm he was delighted. Mm. Uh, and my mother was able to, she talked about music a lot. She had a lot of her old music from school still in the house, including some Beethoven sonatas, piano sonatas, some Chopin stuff and so on. I, I found all this, started to play it. I went to piano lessons. My grandfather was a, had, was a coal miner in, the, in areas like Earth, the Ayrshire coal fields, similar to uh, parts of the north of England and the Midlands and to West Lothian and Fife. It was a coal mining area and, and the brass band tradition was very strong. He was a euphonium player the local colliery bands, and he edged me that way. He got me my first cornet, took me along to my first band rehearsals in Dome Ellington. So I was a trumpeter and cornet player um, for some time uh, as a youngster. So with a, a bit of piano, trumpet and cornet. Also, you talk about those days, you know, when I don't remember actually playing the recorder, but, you know, I was given the chance to play the violin at the age of nine or to learn the, the violin. But there were things like, you know, going into school assembly once a day and there'd be an LP playing. It could be whatever. It could be some Beethoven. It could be some Greek. And the, I think those days are gradually disappearing. And it, it's being, you know, exposed to music at a young age, isn't it? And, and giving more people a chance to encounter it get to know it, get to love it, maybe want to perform it, and in your case, maybe want to write it. That's right. And uh, I know these things come in cycles and people, people are always expressing an anxiety about music in the curriculum, music in schools. Um, are, are people hearing or, get, are getting the opportunity to hear classical music as much as they used to be? Um, is, is classical music uh, in a precarious situation? We've heard all these... Uh, scare stories and, and they're, they're quite scary of course however people have been talking about the demise of classical music for decades and decades mm. uh, and it hasn't happened no and uh, what happens is that um, it renews itself sometimes in, in unexpected ways I mean I, I, I'm always struck by 
the likes of Theodore Adorno, the, the great uh, German musicologist and composer who was uh, um, talking about the demise of classical music, the end of classical music in the 1930s, because, um, because, because, of the, because record players and the radios were, were, were now uh, uh, omnipresent. And in many ways, it was the radios and record players that, that saved classical music, or at least pushed it onto the next level. So while, while we are always anxious, and we should always be careful about uh, dangers on the horizon for our, our culture, um, there are sometimes mysterious ways that uh, a musical culture can reinvent itself or rebirth itself in some ways. And I think, I think that's happening. People are talking about young people, for example, in the, in the pandemic and the lockdown, finding their own roots to classical music mm. in ways that wasn't predicted. And if you look at some parts of the world that, that didn't have classical music until a few years ago, um, within our lifetime, look what's happened in China. Yeah, uh, and in Venezuela with the whole El Sistema thing, these things are happening all over the world. That's right. At South Korea, I went there a few years ago, and it was a very young audience um, and full houses. I mean, you got me thinking also, you know, that people are more and more encountering classical music, but in a different way. You know, I just conducted a concert not so long ago to an almost full Royal Albert Hall of, of music from the uh, history of Sony PlayStation. You know, people are encountering their, their classical music or their music... It, it's a broad umbrella, classical music, but you know what I mean, through things like mm. gaming. Uh, and, you know, if you listen to the classic FM charts every Easter, in the top 10, there's bound to be at least one, if not two, game soundtracks. And that's, you know, the new thing, like, the you know, as you said, the radio, the music, it spreads itself somewhere else in a different direction and people can pick it up and encounter it. Do you, yeah. I'm sure you do, do you remember when you wrote your first piece? How young were you? What was it? Um, I mean, you know, I'm sure you, it's vivid of you remember that what it was. Mm. Well, I was scribbling down uh, little lists of notes even before I, I knew what notation was, because I was beginning to learn note names and how to get my fingers round the, the recorded BAG and so on. Yeah. Um, so I was scribbling these things down. As soon as I, I, I found notation, I, I was writing music really immediately. So aged nine or 10, the first thing that I remember writing was a little piano piece in A minor. Uh, I've still got the manuscript upstairs somewhere. Uh, I wrote it as a present for my mum. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's lovely. So yeah, the, those were, these are the first steps. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I then, well, I'm going to jump onto the fact that you studied composition, I believe, at the University of Edinburgh with um, Rita McAllister and Kenneth Leighton, and then later at Durham with John Caskin. Yeah. I'm imagining that you and I have something in common here in the fact that, briefly, I was a first, joint first study composer and violinist at the Birmingham Conservatoire, and the first time I ever conducted anything was a piece of my own, um, and it was mm -hmm. a piece of 13 brass and percussion. So well, was that the first time you ever conducted anything, or did you... Were you interested in conducting through your brass banding and trumpet playing? How did it first come into your life, conducting? Well, right from those very early days, I was being pushed into uh, organisational roles uh, with, with, with my peers at school, you know, organising little groups of musicians amongst the musicians in the class to do stuff. Uh, right. Usually it was a Catholic school, so it was usually to do with liturgy and playing the piano for hymns and so on, and sometimes making arrangements of hymns for little groups of musicians. So that kind of organisational facility, which I think is there amongst many uh, conductors. I noticed in your discussion with um, Mark Wigglesworth uh, that he, uh, I remember Mark when he was an undergraduate at Manchester University. Yeah. Uh, I taught him, not, comp not, not conducting, I hasten to add, but I, I gave him some composition lessons and other things. And he was always organising ensembles, always getting his fellow students involved in, to perform it was quite, quite complex music, you know, uh, Schoenberg's Chamber symphony and the, the berg and so on and so really uh, amazing stuff so and that he reminded me what i was like as, as an undergraduate uh, i was doing similar things organizing um new music concerts not just music by myself but my my friends um and i had done that at high school too yeah. uh, i also ha had have a, a big interest in choral music so I, I got to work with choirs very early on conducting a choir at school 
and then running a choir at university. Uh, and a lot of the choral, a lot of the conductors I admire, as well as the great orchestral conductors, were also choral people. Yeah. So I have that other side to my life that's still been very important. So right from those early days, I found myself in a, a situation similar to Mark's, you know, having to uh, persuade my fellow students to give up their time for no money, of course, to come yeah. to rehearsals and maybe a concert at the, at the end of it. So, I mean, the, you're right. I mean, conductors do seem to like that organising, getting their own orchestras and ensembles together. Did you yeah. ever have any lessons in conducting? Because um, it's one of the major threads with the, the other conductors is finding out how you were taught. Or I mean, there have been some who have never had a lesson in their life. But um, yeah. did you have, ever have any lessons? And if so, who with? Not really. Not mm. really. Uh, I mean, it's it's. Uh, I didn't expect to be doing this uh, seriously, as it were. Yeah. I was a composer, and that's the way I was going to go. But I just found myself having to edge into this other territory all the time. But I never really thought of myself as a conductor at all mm. until, um, you know, I, I'd be sort of thrown into situations where, uh, and it was the organisational ability perhaps came in uh, good for me, um, you know, working on educational projects with the Scottish Chamber Orchestra. Oh, well, would you conduct this little piece by Maxwell Davis? We're doing a project based on his music. And, and then I found myself conducting my own music with professional players. And gradually, uh, you'll, I, I found myself learning that way. Yeah. One of the, the most important things that ever happened to me, which in a sense turned the tide and made me realise that I, I, I probably did want to be on the back on the podium more seriously was um, after writing a, uh, a piece for the proms, The Confession of Isabel Gaudi. I wrote it in 1990 and Yasmik conducted it with the BBC Scottish at the 1990 proms. It became, uh, became quite popular with conductors quite soon and um, Sinopoli decided to conduct it with the Philharmonia oh, wow. a few years later. And uh, I decided, right, yeah, I'll go down and hear that. And anyway, a week before the performance, I got a call from the management saying, uh, Mr. Sinopoli hasn't learned the score. Um, <laughs> would, you come, would, you, would you come and conduct it in his concert? Yes. And uh, I said, yes, okay. But I realised on, on accepting it, I'd, I'd never been in the Royal Festival Hall before. I'd never stood in front of a, a bunch of hardened London musicians before. And suddenly I was thrown into the position. And so I, I did the Confession of Isabel Gaudi at the Royal Albert Hall, sorry, at, at the Royal Festival Hall. Um, uh, and and it, it kind of changed my life. Mm. Um, and after that, I got, you know, a management approach, approached me about, um, would you like to do more? I said, yes. Uh, they, they advised me what to do, because uh, how, how, I, I hadn't planned on other repertoire. I, I, even today, I mean, I, there's certain things I wouldn't do. I mean, I, I'll never, I never really want to conduct a, a Mahler symphony. Or, mm. um, but but there are there are certain things in standard repertoire that I do want to do and have done. But I, my, my route to this has been all over the place. It's been very different to the standard, I, I didn't learn it at the conservatory level. I haven't had a proper lesson. Although I did go uh, uh, to Sir Colin Davis once for a consultation, yeah. which was very helpful yeah. and very useful. Um, you brought up something. You, you mentioned the, the name of that piece, The Confessions of Isabel Gowdy. It made me smile because that was the first time I encountered your name. Uh, the reason being is that I, in between 1990 and 1991, I was learning the Sibelius Violin Concerto, which was also oh, on yes. that programme. If, if you, it was, absolutely. Uh, with, uh, I think it was with yeah. Dong Suk Kang, was the soloist. Yeah. And a friend of mine gave me a video of the concert and said, this is a marvellous performance of the Sibelius. So I did what any person would do, is I put on the video, when it was started at the beginning, and I watched your piece. I thought, sod the Sibelius, I'm going to I'm rewound it and watched it again, because I absolutely loved it. <laughs> uh, and that was, uh, it was my first introduction to your music. And, you know, eventually I did watch the Sibelius, but I have to say on that videotape, I watched your piece far more often than I watched the Sibelius, which I don't know whether that, what that shows about, you know, me or the performance of the Sibelius or how much I was into learning it, but your music really caught my imagination. And um, it was something I, I, uh, something I wanted to mention to you because it just... That I remember thinking, my God, what an amazing piece. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, I went to Boozy's not so long ago and they, they said, oh, 
um, have a look at some music and there's some new music here and commissions here and all of that. And the first piece I went and found was yours. And so can I have a, can I have this score please? Mm -hmm. So I intend to do it. I love it. But um, it's interesting that that piece, I mean, it sort of brought your, you to public, really to public attention, but then it obviously it's changed your life as well in, into conducting. I mean, we're going to go on to what repertoire I've got all sorts of questions for you, which I've never been able to ask any other composer conductor. Um, uh, ten years later, you end up being composer and conductor with the BBC Phil. What was that uh, arrangement like? How many, did you have a, a set amount of music you had to compose for them, maybe one piece a year? Uh, and and were you only conducting things with your music was in, or were you also conducting other things as well? Um, I, I did write a, a number of pieces while, while I was with them. I did yeah. about nine or ten years with them and all. Um, yeah. Uh, I had quite a wide and roving brief. Uh, it wasn't just my own music, but it was heavily geared towards new music, contemporary music. Mm. Um, Maxwell Davis had had, a sim had been in a similar position with that orchestra for about nine or ten years before me. So in a sense, it was a, it was taking over from him, mm. carrying on from him. And in fact, after me, they, they, they got... Um, Nally Gruber. Mm. Uh, and so they've had uh, a number of different composer conductors uh, working with them. I think uh, uh, various younger composers have stepped up and it seems to be something that works very well for that orchestra. Um, I, I mean, the, the, it was heavily geared towards new music and, and the BBC Phil had a, a, a sort of running project where a composer would be featured and I would get to be able to conduct a whole range of his, his or her music uh, and, and I learned an awful lot of new music by many different composers and, and performed that music throughout that, that time, which was fascinating. I met some wonderful people, mm. uh, include, including Gear Cancelli, uh, the Jordan composer, uh, and various others. sort of brings up another question um which is about relationships so i mean if you're you were there eight or nine years uh you were obviously writing you wrote the music every year um did does that mean that you ended up writing music specifically for the orchestra, orchestra knowing the personalities within it but then also because you were conducting your music and other music like Cancelli's and whatever else, and you would have got to know some players, were they then speaking to you about conducting? You know, there, there's this whole symbiotic relationship. What was the relationship like with the players and and your music and conducting? Uh, yes, the, the, there was a lot of that. Uh, it wasn't one every year, uh, the, uh, but there were significant, quite substantial works. I wrote for the BBC Philharmonic and including my third symphony. And uh, by that stage, I, I had got to know the players quite well, so that when I was writing for, you know, apart for the solo flute or solo clarinet, I was actually envisioning people and mm. faces and, and personalities that I had got to know rather than just abstract sounds. So you're right, over a long period like that, um, you do get to know the players and, and you can fashion the music to suit the personalities and the, and the individuals involved. Mm. Um, and certainly the third symphony, it was co-commissioned. I, I want to talk about some about the who else commissioned that because it, it relates to one of your questions. Mm. Uh, but but certainly the BBC Philharmonic uh, featured very strongly in how that work came about. Yeah. Um, you also had um, four years as principal guest with the Netherlands Radio Chamber Philharmonic. How did that come about? Had you been there and guested beforehand? And then uh, when you came in as principal guest, I mean, it's a peculiar question because with any other conductor, I wouldn't ask this question, but because you are you and you write your music, were you uh, asked to go in and do week's work as principal guest conductor with them uh, of music that wasn't by you or did they always want one of your pieces? Uh, I, I found myself at various stages uh, with the with that orchestra and others um, conducting programs that didn't have any of my music in it. It, yeah. it just became um, part part of the natural natural way. Um, I'd say eight times out of ten, though, uh, there would be a work of mine. It seemed to be the 
the linchpin, even if it, yeah. even if it was just in a little piece, a starting piece, an overture or something, it, it marked the concert with with my stamp, as it were. Um, but the, that was a fascinating time. I had worked there a lot. The, the, the orchestra works out of Hilversum. It's a radio orchestra, and and Hilversum, of course, is the is the centre of Dutch radio, not just mm. music music, but it's a big there's a big music centre there. Uh, at one time, there was a, a whole range of orchestras operating out of Hilversum, and some have been abolished, unfortunately. I mean, the Dutch music scene has had its uh, troubles too mm. over the years. Um, and in fact, the orchestra you mentioned, the one that I worked with, came to an end uh, very sadly. Uh, hopefully, nothing to do with me. Uh, <laughs> but, but at the end of my tenure there, but the, the Dutch government were making huge cuts in culture. And, and I suppose we're used to that here. We, we see the, the, the warnings on, uh, on the horizon as well with the BBC and, and, and many other things. One, one hopes that one can keep uh, the flag flying, but the, the Dutch uh, were hard hit. Um, my time with them involved lots of diff different types of music. I learned an awful lot of music, not just um, brand new music and, and new music was specially written for me when I was there by Dutch composers and others. Um, but I got to do sort of modern classics as well, you know, the Bartok music for strings, percussions, so less. And, and I got to do these in the in the you know, that one of the, the major forums for that orchestra was the Concertgebouw in Amsterdam. Uh, and to be able to conduct in that hall in particular has been one of the great joys of my life. It's one mm. of the great halls of the world. And any, any musician who's performed there will know that. You were there recently, weren't you? You did one of your pieces there not so long ago. That's right. Just a few weeks ago, I, I don't know how I got away with it. To be honest, in the middle of all this <laughs> lockdown, but uh, uh, they got me over there. It was touch and go. There was tests going out, tests coming back, and restrictions and all the rest of it. Uh, and they were cutting my string size down almost by the day. But mm. I got away with it. Away with it. The the the, uh, the Dutch were co-commissioners of my Christmas oratorio, mm. which is a, a big piece. It's a full evening, a full concert work and uh, the LPO were, were the British leg of that. Their concert uh, had to be cancelled or at least postponed uh, until later this year. But the Dutch decided to go ahead with it, not with a live audience, but uh, they, they had live audiences in in September and so on when things um, sort of lessened off a bit. But by the time January came, there was no live audiences anywhere in Holland. However, we did it as a live concert and it went out live on Dutch radio. So to tens of thousands of people and, uh, and it's available uh, still uh, on the website for people around the world. And so I told all my friends here and elsewhere to, to tune in. And it was a, it was a wonderful rejuvenating experience. It felt as if some kind of normality was uh, coming back to us. I walked into the rehearsal space the first day and felt very moved when I saw many of my old colleagues and friends who had moved over to uh, the Radio Philharmonic from, from the chamber orchestra that we're talking about that had been mm. abolished. But I saw suddenly all these old friends from my past who were there ready and waiting to start work on a, a brand new piece of music. And uh, it was a consoling moment and uh, um, an invigorating moment. And the whole week was fabulous. We, there was a chorus involved in it as well. Um, and, you know, everybody's amazed at that, you know, because they yeah. say that the, it's the choirs that will be the last to go back. Uh, but all over Europe, where they have these wonderful professional choirs, they have a, a lot of care and a lot of expertise in how they do social distancing. And there, was, there were people uh, coming coming, going all the time, telling us when to move, where to go, when to eat, who could eat and all. So it was, it, was, it was quite restrictive, but actually very meticulously done so that everyone was safe. Yeah. I don't think amateur choirs could, could do that yet. And, and, right. and I know there's great consternation in this country, but when our amateur, great amateur choruses will be back. But, you know, my chorus in Holland was cut from a, a, a usual 60 down to 36 with social distancing. It made it very difficult to keep things together, but we did it. And uh, it went out live on, on Dutch radio, as I say, and to a rave review I read in The Spectator, at least, um, which means that uh, it's on my, I've bookmarked it actually to watch it. It's on my browser to watch it. I just, with podcasting and various other things, I haven't got around to doing it, but it was a rave review. He absolutely loved it. Richard Bradbury wrote the 
review for you and the spectator. Um, mm -hmm. I've got a question for you, which I've only ever asked one other conductor before. Again, he uh, he he's a composer, uh, Bram Ortovi, and um, uh, and he gave me a wonderfully honest answer actually. But the question is, um, when you conduct your own music, do you What's the best way of phrasing it? Um, do you ever look down at the score and think, well, that's a wonderful sound there I've written there, or um, or actually maybe that viola line should be different? Or, or are you still composing when you're conducting, or can you divorce the two bits of your head and just conduct what's in front of you? I think you've got to divorce uh, the two activities. Yeah. Um, I think there has to be a, a very clear division between the composer and the conductor, even within the same person. Yeah. Um, and I'll come back to that in a minute, but but uh, I think one does, the composer does learn uh, by revisiting his old scores. And certainly yeah. when I go back to a work like The Confession of Isabel Gaudi, it, it's quite a strange experience. It's a bit like finding your old letters that you wrote when you were a, a young man or even a child and recognizing, yes, you recognize the same person in those words or in those notes, uh, but that life has changed. Uh, and there's a rather wistful uh, realisation just how much life has changed uh, <laughs> in the 30 years I've, I've written, uh, the, uh, 30 years since I've written The Confession of Visible Gaudi. And uh, there are things uh, in the piece that are very much of its time and of a young man's mind. Yeah. And I can't really imagine myself doing any more. Uh, but I, I, I find that, you know, when I when I write a piece of music, I get to the uh, the end and I put the double bar on, and you know it's it's music that has lived in my mind for months and months, sometimes up to a year, hmm. uh, and so the mind or the soul holds a kind of structure in mind, a kind of panoply of ideas that's held in uh, um, intention uh, with the, with all the other el different elements for ages. And then when you get to the end, strangely and very mysteriously for me, it, everything just disappears. It's like wakening up from a dream. Yeah, it's a very, yeah. very strange uh, experience. It's a kind of necessary forgetting because the, the comp compositional part of your mind moves on to the next task yes. at hand, the next piece of music. One has to forget, but mm. it's a very strange experience. It's like, as I say, wakening up. Uh, and of course, when you do wake up uh, in the morning, you, you, your dreams do tend to evaporate mm. or you have, you're left with a very hazy memory of what was there. And so when I come to the score in preparation for a concert, I sometimes look at these scores and don't recognise them at all. <laughs> you know, I've, I've, I've lived with this music for months and months and months where there was almost nothing else in my head. And yet I come to it as if a, a, a different person. And in, in many ways, that's a good way to be because yeah. you've got to learn it from scratch. And it's like learning. When I, when I pick up a score like the Christmas Oratorio we were talking about uh, a few months ago when I started learning, it did feel like learning a piece from, from the very beginning. Mm. And uh, it's a te technically then it's a useful way to be, uh, but it means that I'm aware of two very different minds, even personalities that were rather schizophrenic situation to be in. Uh, the composer and the conductor is, is quite separate. Well, it, I, I loved your analogy about looking back at old letters because, you know, you, you obviously recognise what you wrote, you vaguely remember writing it, but you know, the use of language will be different as you grow older, but also your handwriting changes as you grow older. You know, um, uh, use of structure of sentences changes and all of that. Uh, I think it's a really good analogy. I mean, Bramwell Tovey was also talking about the little things about the fact that, you know, he would just keeping a tempo, he said, was difficult sometimes with, with his own music because he was busy looking at the score. Um, and I suppose, yeah, if you are going back to it, now trying to remember a dream or learn it that way, then you are going to be focused on the conducting element of it. Um, which leads to my next question. Is it easy to let go when you go and watch somebody else conducting one of your pieces? Um, because obviously tempos will vary and balances will vary because you know they're going to look at the score in a different way. Once the baby is born, uh, is, mm. it, is, it, is it hard or easy for you to just go, well, off you go, you know, somebody else now must look after the child for a bit? Yeah, well, I, I, I actually feel quite non-proprietorial about <laughs> my music. 
Yeah. Uh, so I'm I'm able to let it go. Uh, yeah. It is like having children, of course, but but those children have got to be let loose in the world and to find their own way. And I'm I'm delighted when I hear others take up uh, uh, the score and and do it sometimes very very different ways. I've heard very many different interpretations of of the same piece, mm. uh, but I, I'm at ease with that. Also, I've I've learned having conducted the work of my colleagues. Uh, through through the years, living composers uh, all over the world, um, that sometimes composers who don't let go um, when they attend rehearsals can cause anxiety amongst the the performers. They can be too close to the music, and I've found when they interfere too much. Now, sometimes literally getting over the shoulder of the conductor, <laughs> absolutely, uh, yeah, <laughs> and therefore in the faces of the of the musicians, yeah. it just causes consternation. Mm. And I thought to myself, I never really want to be like that. Yeah, uh, it's not it's not a good way to be. So I tend to s- sit back and let them go on with it, and 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 offer, hopefully, the most constructive advice uh, when asked, but yeah. but not any time before. Yeah, I've I've done quite a lot of new music and premieres and things, and and yeah, that there, there have been on the occasions, you know, the the hand on the shoulder and pointing at things, and, and you know, are you going to rehearse this? Well, yes, I will, but I, I, this isn't the time of the rehearsal to do that. You know, I know that it's just popped into your mind, but you give me, let me do my job, and then I'll come back to you. I mean, the better ones, yeah. you know, the ones that I enjoyed working with are, you know, you do the rehearsals, and then at some point, when you think you've probably got about 15 or 20 minutes left, I'll, I'll go out and have a chat with the composer and say, right, is, is there anything that's really burning, really, that you're really, you know, tell me, tell me all sorts of things that you can hear. But there, there is a, a process in the rehearsal where, you know, you're going to let certain things slide because it might mm. be human error and you trust your orchestra and then you want to hear it again and then it, sometimes it fixes itself but then after that second time you want to rehearse it what you don't want is somebody coming up and telling you after the first time all the time it's, yeah, you're absolutely right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> When you're asked to go and conduct, let's say the second half of a concert is one of your pieces, how easy is it for you to program the first half? Do you have set pieces that you think go well with your music if it's a whole of the second half? You, I mean, you mentioned earlier on that you know you wouldn't want to conduct a Mahler symphony. Are there certain pieces you think actually I don't think that would ever go with my St. Luke Passion or with what you know, whatever? How, how do you go about programming the first half for things? Well, I've always been very interested in uh, how my music has been programmed and, and how conductors, musicians, managements do conceive programmes. And yeah. it's had an, an impact uh, on the way I think. I think there are certain composers uh, that sit well uh, in a programme uh, of my, with my music and uh, certain contexts that work better than others. I, um, I've always been passionate about music from this country. Yeah. And I, I, you're probably aware that in, in some other countries, even close by, um, there's sometimes a, a detachment from the, the whole British music uh, repertoire and world. Mm. And that's a shame. Uh, and I almost feel that you know, when I get to get opportunities to conduct in Germany or Austria, Belgium, Russia, uh, this is an opportunity to bring you know, a Von Williams symphony yeah. or um, a piece by Elgar that yeah. might not be known. And uh, I do that a lot. Sometimes I do it very deliberately. And uh, uh, the mus- musicians don't know the music. I mean, I, yeah. I conducted Von Williams four uh, with a, an orchestra in Austria a few years ago, and none of them knew it. Uh, but they played it beautifully at the end, but they had to learn it from scratch. And I had to, in a, in a real sense, teach them, that, teach them it, yeah. teach them the, the accents and the, uh, the, the, the mood and the colours and so on. It, it sounded a bit like Bartok to begin with, but actually it's not such a bad thing because I think Von Williams was probably listening to a lot of Bartok at the time when he wrote that, that symphony. Yeah. Um, you know, I've taken things like the Fantasia on a theme by Thomas Tallis to orchestras in Germany and Belgium. And uh, the musicians knew about the music, but no, had never actually played it. Right. So when they actually got to play it, they, 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 they just loved it. 
Yeah. And I think there's a there's a there is a kind of cultural divide sometimes between here and some other countries, and and sometimes it's the British repertoire that's got lost over mm. the years. Yeah. And I, I love being able to. Uh, it's not it's not patriotic advocacy. It's just I do love this music. You know, mm. uh, I think Von Williams is, was a genius. Um, and, but there's still sometimes an element in, in, say, German musical culture that does still maybe secretly think we are das Land owner music. Yeah, and uh, yeah. it's ni nice to try to prove them wrong. Yeah, so I, I like to present my music in a British context, Benjamin Britten's music, Tippett's music, Finzi, all that, this kind of thing, as well as the moderns like Maxwell Davies and Bert Whistle and so on. Right. You know, I'm passionate about that. There are other um, earlier composers for, um, that also suit me uh, and have suited other conductors' programming music. The music of Shostakovich, for example, seems to work well. Music of Sibelius, northern composers that, yeah. in that sense, you know, the, yeah. the Scandinavians. Uh, Messiaen with the whole kind of Catholic connection, maybe less so. I don't think the music sounds like Messiaen, but there's uh, thematically, uh, when there is a, a work that has a kind of theological reach, uh, it's quite a good idea to have my music um, programmed alongside. Uh, a question which is now moving away from composition, uh, moving away from composition and conducting, and sort of more towards conducting ish. You've just mentioned lots of places you've been to, and looking at your biography, on and you've conducted basically all over the world. Do you enjoy guest conducting? But also, whilst you're there, because it popped into my head, and I wasn't going to ask this, but I'm going to, are you still writing whilst you, when you go on a trip abroad, say we could go to Russia or you go to Germany to go and conduct? Do you write uh, using the old-fashioned method, or do you do you actually have to be at home and in sitting in your compositional studio to do that? Well, it really depends on what stage of the piece has been written. Sometimes I am able to take work with me. Yeah. Sometimes I need to take work with me. And sometimes I even request that I have a, a dressing room in the hall where there is a piano. Uh, you usually expect there to be pianos in, in backstages, but it's not always the case. No. <laughs> so you have to sort of make, make uh, special arrangements. And it does mean that I can sometimes just stay on after the rehearsal and tinker away at something. Uh, or I, I have been able to work in my hotel room all right. Yeah. Uh, it, it depends. If the work is at a certain stage, I can do that quite well, and the energy levels can continue. Uh, other stages, if the work isn't particularly well advanced, uh, I'm just too tired after a rehearsal to really settle back into composition. But I do, I do enjoy the excitement of meeting new musicians mm. in other countries, uh, sometimes it's just wonderful. Sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it's the, the, the relationship doesn't work. And I suppose that's one of the, the great um, challenges of, of being, a, uh, being a conductor. You know, sometimes it doesn't work. Yeah. And you never really know when it won't work or when it will and why it doesn't work. And even you, even you come away from an encounter and you wonder why it worked and why it spectacularly didn't, didn't work. And I suppose it has to do with personality and that kind of group psychology that... Uh, uh, orchestras can frighteningly have, <laughs> yeah, and you're, you're never really aware of what it's like until you're up in front of them. Yeah, well, it's true. I mean, Barbara Hannigan talks of, you know, having her first bad experience and ringing up Simon Rattle and uh, Vladimir Yurovsky and asking, you know, what do I, how do I cope? And they said, they just laughed and said, we all have them, Barbara. We all have bad weeks. It's just, you know, learning from it and then moving forwards. But it's most important that you're, you be yourself and there'll be enough people out there who love what you do and, and getting on with it. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. that, that is the one of the excitements about doing it is you turn up to a place you may never have been before stand in front of this orchestra and put a beat down and you have no idea what's going to come back, but also they have no idea what you're going to be like. And it, it's, yeah. it's speed dating. It's almost trying to, you know, speed marriage in, in, you know, in, in two or three days rehearsal. Um, mm. And everybody works at different speeds and everybody has different priorities orchestrally. Um, and it, you're right. It is exciting, um, challenging, daunting, sometimes frightening. Um, yeah. And as you said, yeah, sometimes you walk away and think, "Well, that was wonderful." I have no idea why because they never spoke to me at all. Or <laughs> another time, yeah. you're very you get on with them very very well, but the concert was not was so so, and you think, "Well, that's a shame." Um, yeah, and, I know. Every, yeah. and sometimes that can be devastating uh, yeah, in yeah. the moment, and, and and you it's one it's something you've got to learn over the years, just not to beat yourself up about it, and maybe not to linger on it as as one can sometimes with one's faults and. Um, yeah. 
but you know, you, you, the important thing is to just absorb the, the bad as well as the good and to build on it. Now, there's a question I've asked every single conductor, um, because people seem to really, really like the, uh, to know, and it's about score preparation. When you come to learn a new piece, um, do you have a set way of doing so? Do you sit at the piano to look at harmonies, or do you sit at a desk and use your inner ear? And when you do so, are you a scribbler with pen and pencil, uh, different colours, or are you somebody who can assimilate it all and get it into your brain without doing that? Well, le learning um, music, uh, new scores, and for me, it, in many, many ways, um, even learning repertoire, standard repertoire, can be a new experience for me, um, which can be quite daunting because it means that I sometimes, even, even though I'm well prepared, will enter into that rehearsal room um, with a group of 50, 60, 70 people who have all done it before and I haven't. I'm the only one in the room that hasn't done it before. <laughs> but that, I mean, every con conductor, I suppose, has those experiences. I have those experiences probably later than most, so I have to be very meticulous in the way that I prepare. So I prepare, uh, I think, well, but also um, in a very calm and collected way over a long period of time. I give myself months, years sometimes to learn a score, especially um, I'm looking at Francesca de Rimini, which was I was supposed to be performing in the States this month. I, I, learned, I started working that well, well over a year ago because I needed mm. to really immerse myself in it as if I had lived with it all my life, which I haven't, yeah. of course. Mm. Um, so um, it, it's, it's, I suppose it's a case of not throwing yourself at a score and trying to absorb it immediately, but patiently um, edge yourself into it. I don't sit at the piano often with a score. I think it's always been important for me as a composer to um, see see a score and hear it mm. uh, to make the inner ear work. Um, when I you were asking earlier about how, how I write music, I do write use paper and pencil, but more more so I've missed out on the whole Sibelius uh, mm. te technological advancement, which can sometimes be a, a detriment, but actually can sometimes be a, an advantage because these playback systems can sometimes give you a very, very wrong impression true, of very what true. you're learning. Mm. But so can playing a piano. Mm. I mean, if you're learning a, a, an orchestral score or even writing an orchestral score or learning a, a choral work or writing a choral work, the last sound that you want in your mind is that of a piano. Mm. Um, so you have to rely on that muscle which is the inner ear. And I've always thought of it as a muscle that had to be true over a lifetime mm. to hear it by looking at it. And um, that's, a, that's a good lesson for composers as well as it is for conductors. Mm. So living with the score silently, because it's in the silence uh, of one's own thoughts that music begins, of course. But I think also uh, for a conductor, it's in the silence of that uh, deep, engagement with the written page that uh, the, the, the deep interaction begins and emerges and develops. And do you scribble thoughts down uh, during the, let's say, 12 months or more that you might be with a score? Uh, I mean, I know I do. I'm a big scribbler of ideas and thoughts and bowings, and, and I use different colours, which mean different things to me. Do you Are you a, a writer in your scores? Uh, I scribble things. It's, it's mainly Ed memoir that will help me uh, communicate immediately um, or make me remember things in the immediacy of rehearsal and performance. Mm. Um, so uh, modern music, of course, 20th and 21st century music can be very rhythmically dense and complex. So you need all the visual help you can get. Yes. And sometimes the score gives you that, but sometimes you need extra signs and, <laughs> and sig signals just to make sure you're, uh, you're communicating um, rigorously and uh, exactly yeah. what, the, what the players and the singers require. And that sometimes that can be down to who's published a score and whether they choose, how they choose to write the time signatures down, can't it? Sometimes they leap off the page at, at you and other times you're, you're sort of, well, how many beats are in this bar? You know, and yeah. you do need to write something to make it pop off the page at you. Um, mm. So yeah, publishers, make it clear. <laughs> <laughs> If you are fascinated by how a score is marked up, I've written an article on the subject, showing my own method and explaining how I go about the process of marking and learning a score. 
You can see this article, as well as other articles, bonus mini-episodes, interviews and videos, by subscribing from just £5 a month to my Patreon page. If you decide to pay annually, you can even get a 10% discount over the year and join the discussion all about conductors and conducting at a discounted rate. The details are in the show notes attached to this episode, and it would be great to have more of you subscribing to this ever-growing supporters club. Now, back to my chat with Sir James Macmillan and the all-important 10 questions. James, it is 10 questions time, and as ever, I will start with the first two lumped as one. What sound or noise do you love, and what sound or noise do you hate? Uh, the sound that I love is the sound of silence. Um, mm. And about five or six years ago, my wife and I moved out of a very noisy city, Glasgow, just up the road, to uh, this very remote part in the North Ayrshire countryside, mm. uh, which has become very conducive for my work. But of course, th- there is no such thing as silence, as, as John Cage has taught us. Um, <laughs> when I go to out my back door, I hear lots of wonderful things in that emptiness. Mm. Um, I hear birdsong, which is absolutely wonderful. Um, I, I hear the sound of shepherds shepherding their sheep. It's just a magical thing sometimes, unless they're, they're swearing at them. <laughs> um, I also hear at a certain time in the evening, uh, the sound of owls just mm. out in the woods here, which is the most haunting and, and beautiful, beguiling and kind of calming sound. And it can go on well into the evening. So those are the sounds that I, I love. The sound that I hate uh, at the moment is the sound of my new puppy barking continuously. <laughs> um, like many in lockdown, we've acquired a new dog. It's a wonderful uh, little but fast, fast-growing golden Labrador, and it seems to hit a mad patch every late afternoon. Goes on for a few hours, and it's just it's hell on earth for a few hours. But I've been told that it's, they get over that and calm down. Fingers crossed. Well, uh, you've just described my life. Um, I, I live in the middle, of, not about a mile from the Cadbury factory in Birmingham, and ne- our next door neighbours have had a. They bought a, bought a puppy, and it was a, a golden retriever or a golden Labrador. It was about twelve or eighteen months ago, and around the same time every night, it has an, an hour's bark in the back garden. Not long afterwards, um, two owls start talking to each other because we there's quite a lot of old trees near where we were in our back gardens. And the sound of those owls, I mean, I'm a night person anyway. If I, you know, I'm stood at the back window having a cigarette at one in the morning, and you can hear them ch- chatting away to each other, these owls in the dark. It is mm. very haunting. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, uh, around 6 o'clock, it's, it's interspersed with a, uh, an, a dog next door. Uh, and I read online not to shout at it, because I was <laughs> recently. He's apparently <laughs> shouting at it, and he makes it worse, because it thinks yeah. if you're shouting, that he can have a shout, or he or she can have a yeah. shout. So... Yeah. Um, wow. Uh, middle of Birmingham is the same as uh, rural Scotland. There we go. Um, <laughs> next question. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Um, well, in, in lockdown, it's uh, seeing my family, actually, mm. <laughs> uh, because we're not allowed to travel and see them. My, my, my son uh, got married a few years ago, and he and his wife have just had a little girl just before uh, Christmas, and... Mm. We just don't get to see her, so I would uh, I would dash through to Edinburgh uh, and spend at least twenty four hours with them. Mm, brilliant, yeah. It's it's uh, for all of those who've got new grandchildren or children. It must be so frustrating not to be able to see them. Not long now, not long to go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, number four, you can have more than one. Who would be a favourite conductor of yesteryear? Uh, well. Remember earlier I said that I have this kind of double life as in, in the choral world. Yes, um, yeah. A lot of the music that I listened to and indeed fell in love with as a, a young musician was choral music. And I was more intrigued to begin with, with what uh, choir conductors did. Mm. Um, the, the, I mean, the, 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 the orchestral conductors were all, always there, and I'll come to a, a favourite of mine when I was younger in a minute. But to me... Um, a very important recording. I didn't know this man, but a, a recording I lived with for years and years as a, a youngster was George Malcolm's recording of the Tenebrae Responsories um, by Victoria. Mm. Uh, he made this recording. It's, it's regarded as a very famous 
iconic recording in 1959. There's some great singers that went on to be famous singing with it. And of course, Westminster Cathedral, uh, being a, the Catholic cathedral in London, they, they had this kind of very different sound to all the Anglican choirs. It was very um, continental, as I said, yeah. so it was very natural vibratos, almost I mean, a lot of the, the Anglican purists regarded it as bas bad taste to sing in Westminster Cathedral choir. It was a bit like the Sistine Chapel, where <laughs> they all thought they were Pavarotti. But there's something there's something absolutely thrilling about this performance. Um, it's full of uh, emotion, and it, it wouldn't be regarded uh, as the by, by the, the early music um, Authenticists uh, as as something desirable, but I loved it. It was yeah. it was full of, it had something of the essence of the 16th century, but but sort of drenched through uh, Catholic 19th century opera world as well, which has just yeah. made it very unique. So I loved anything that George Malcolm did, and George Malcolm commissioned um, Benjamin Britten's Misa Brevis for Westminster Cathedral Boys as well, mm -hmm. and that that recording is just magical. One of the first recordings of orchestral music, although it was, it's actually opera, it made an impact on me. You know, I wanted my mum and dad to buy me LPs immediately. Um, and one of the first sort of uh, orchestral conductor I, I was aware of and sort of intrigued by was Carl Boehm, mm. um, whose recording of um, Fidelio, uh, Beethoven's Fidelio, on the Deutsche Grammophon series of the, the full, uh, Fidel full Beethoven collection cut from the late 60s, early 70s, was one of my favourite recordings back then. And um, he was a complicated character and quite an old school, quite frightening man that had a, yeah. probably a checkered, checkered role in the early part of the 20th century, like many of them. Yes. Uh, but there was some, something about that recording um, that made his name and his musicianship stick in my mind. It's quite sad, really, because, yeah, as you said, Carl Berm had all sorts of checkered moments in his past but I mean he was a great musician a great conductor at the moment he seems only to be uh the most famous thing about him you find is um th there's an amazing little clip of him conducting I believe it's his last ever concert not long before he died of Beethoven 7 and uh, it's a very short clip of the horn players split something very near the end of the first movement and all you see is this this look of utter disgust on his face <laughs> as the horns make an absolute pig's ear of it and you think well if that's going to be that poor man's uh, lasting legacy is the look on his face because the horns have split something it's such a shame um but yeah, there, yeah there's all sorts of a recorded legacy that he left behind and george malcolm mm -hmm. is a name i i knew but um maybe through the britain connection but um yeah two mm -hmm. names that haven't come up before so that's fascinating now, question five, people find harder, um, and uh, and therefore, let's see if you find it any, uh, any more difficult. And who would be a favourite current conductor or conductors? Mm -hmm. um, well, even although I, I've sort of um, dabbled in the dark art, arts of uh, <laughs> conducting, uh, I'm, I'm still in, the, in the, the dark completely as to how it works. Mm. and how the great conductors achieve what they do. And um, sometimes I've been in the presence, uh, maybe even a rehearsal of conductors I've shared the platform with, and yeah. I thought, was, how on earth did they do that? And twice comes to mind. Uh, I mean, I, I mentioned my third symphony um, earlier, uh, which had involved the BBC Phil, but one of the other co-commissioners was the NHK Symphony Orchestra in Tokyo. Yeah. And the the instinct, the 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 desire that the commission really had come from Charles Dutois. Yeah. So I've I've conducted the NHK a couple of times. They're a great orchestra, uh, but I went out to Tokyo for his concert. He was going to conduct my third symphony, but in the rest of the program were uh, pictures of an exhibition by uh, Mussorgsky and some Debussy or Ravel. I can't quite remember now. And I sat during his rehearsals. And I was just mesmerised at what he was doing. Yeah. This is an orchestra that is mostly associated with Germanic repertoire. It's what they do best, so they say. They yeah. Had, they had the Carian connection and so on. So Beethoven, Wagner, Bruckner, Mahler is, is in their bones. Maybe not so much the, the, the French and the Russian stuff. Yeah. And that's what he was doing. And he was getting this kind of shimmering string sound, especially from the violins, in, in the Debussy and also in, in the Mussorgsky. And I says, how on earth is he doing that? 
And I just couldn't work out who did, who did it. I still don't know. And I even was crass enough to ask him afterwards, <laughs> how did you do that? Uh, shouldn't, shouldn't have bothered, actually, because I get no sensible answer from him. And maybe that's the point. Maybe even if they know how they're doing it, they won't tell you. But if I could uh, bottle the essence of that, I could, I could make myself a a great conductor and I maybe even make myself a rich man by selling the, <laughs> selling the secrets around. Yeah. So something about Charles de Troyes that absolutely mesmerised me uh, in the times that I've seen him conduct. I've seen him conduct in the States as well. And the other person that did that for me uh, was Jean-Andrea Nozeda in yes. his early days at the BBC Philharmonic. Mm. Uh, I shared co concerts with him and I s sneaked into his rehearsals and especially one day he was working with the orchestra before the soloist arrived on the four last songs by Strauss and again he was getting these magical sounds and I just don't know how he was doing it now those kind of flute um, uh, trills yes. at the end of that beautiful song and he was telling them to make it sound like jewels, what you're making is the sound of jewels and he had this wonderful way of describing it but even in the description, the description was not adequate to indicate just exactly what he was doing and yeah. I, I just and, and the players were in absolute awe of him um he was he was he had their full attention and respect and affection yeah and i just wish i knew, <laughs> knew how you did that um and there's something about the personality that is able to communicate itself and sometimes it doesn't happen all the time but in some some um um some of these coming together of, of conductor and, and orchestra, it, it's, it's magical. And, and I've been able to see that on, on those two occasions and I'm sure I've seen it and you've seen it as well. Well, I, I never got to play for Dutois, um, but I did play for Nozeda and loved it. And I think the one thing that I remember distinctly about him was he seemed so invested in the process. He seemed so immersed in it. I mean, there's the obvious thing about, you know, he's very energetic and, and sweats profusely after an hour or so's rehearsal. And it, it sort of, you know, you, you think, well, this guy's taking it so seriously. He's, you know, he's not a serious person. He's got a great sense of humour and he's got a great way with the orchestra, but he just seems immersed in the whole process. And you think, well, if you're going to immerse yourself, I'll immerse myself. You know, there are quite a few conductors who come across as being rather aloof and standoffish. And you think, well, if you're not going to get involved, even though there may well be being involved, you know, you stand off. But I think with Nazeda, I really enjoy playing for him. I can, I, I can fully understand why the BBC Phil were all in... Or and and all working so hard and pulling in the same direction. Um, yeah. Two brilliant choices again, mm -hmm. uh, not chosen before. So yeah, we're doing well. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's see whether you choose your next. Um, the answer to the next question is a uh, one we've not heard before. And so, what is the hardest work you have ever conducted? I can't quite remember the the title of it, but it was certainly by the Finnish composer Kalevi Aho. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was with the BBC Philharmonic again. Uh, again, I, I got to the opportunity to conduct a lot of my colleagues' music in, in concerts that, where the, there was a composer focus. Yeah. And it must have been Kalevi Aho's turn, and, and we did a lot of his music. And I just found it not, not just technically hard, both for the conductor and the players. And there was one piece, it, was, it seemed to be a concertante work for two cellos and orchestra. It was just so, so hard to get together, yeah. technically, rhythmically, but also the, um, uh, the stamina required by yeah. everyone involved, uh, the counting, the physical exertion that was required, and every piece of his, and it was fabulous music and well worth the effort. Yeah. Every piece was like that. I was just utterly drained after... <laughs> Well, not after, certainly after every concert, but certainly after every rehearsal too. Kalevi Aho. It must be hard music because the BBC Philharmonic play more together quicker than most other orchestras I ever work with. They're superb at that, just no, seemingly pulling from thin air. Oh, you're playing that and therefore it fits with me this way or that way. So if they found it hard, it must have been treacherously difficult. Um, they're very oh. slick on things like ensemble and rhythm. Uh, uh, on the first read through, they are. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that, right. that's, yeah, well, I shall look him up, um, Mr. Yeah. Mr. Aho. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Um, I, I just like to keep in touch, not just with family, but friends, but with, but with the world. So I take yeah. one of my devices with me 
to keep in touch with the world. It's pretty, um, it can be pretty oppressive, to be honest. Uh, I am a kind of political animal by instinct, um, mm. non-aligned, of course, now my politi political days are all behind me, but I just have never lost that desire to know what's going on. Yeah. And sometimes to contribute my own tuppence worth it. I mean, I like to write about things. Um, I've, I've contributed a lot of articles, usually on cultural matters, sometimes theological matters, but sometimes it strays into the political, especially when music or culture and politics comes together. Yeah. So I need to have a device and keep, to keep my ideas fresh, keep my ideas on paper. Used to be pen and paper, but uh, digitalized, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, these days, I mean, I use Twitter a lot because I get a lot of news from there. You know, most things actually appear on Twitter before it appears on the breaking news flashes on BBC or something like think. that. But then yeah. the problem with Twitter is that you can then get embroiled in a in in a some sort of political argument very easily yeah. and spend yeah. the rest of the day you know arguing the toss with some you know whoever. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm, afraid, I'm afraid I succumbed to that and eventually decided to come off Twitter. I do have a Twitter account, but it's run by Boozy and Hawks, my publishers, yeah. and I don't I don't say anything. I, I just found the temptation too much to sort of insert some kind of nebby comment about anything it could be anything <laughs> yeah. you find yourself finding falling out with people for yes. no good reason yeah that's true <laughs> that, it is very true yeah um number eight what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor yes i, I saw that uh, I, 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 i'm a bit stumped to be honest I, I don't know if i can answer that question um every, everything that you do as a conductor is necessary Mm. But I've certainly spoken to some of my colleagues who are preparing for uh, life where they won't travel as much. And yeah. part, part of that's a kind of ethical thing. Uh, part of it is a safety thing. Uh, perhaps it's to do with uh, carbon footprint, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe, maybe that will be imposed on us. But that opens up a whole kind of worms about who, what it means to work locally. Is it a good thing or not? And yeah. uh, will it impact on local musical culture? Not just British musical culture, but actually what happens in the in the here and now and what happens in Ayrshire? Will it mean more music for us to do in, in our home patch or not? Mm -hmm. no, I think it's a very valid comment. I think there's an awful lot of people trying to work out how it's what's going to happen when restrictions are lifted across the world. And and, and you know, speaking to somebody in the UK, there are, not only are there COVID restrictions now, there are EU restrictions as well, and that may, that's also making life and travelling for a conductor uh, something that we never thought about before. Um, uh, so yeah, it's yeah, it's a tricky thing. Um, now I've in the past I've uh, it was Daniel Harding who was uh, I had to basically say you know you're a conductor and an airline pilot, so can you give me a third profession that you'd like to attempt? And you, you know you're a conductor and a composer, so is there another profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Well, I have one toe in academia, and I suppose over the years I've always had, I mean, um, before I started conducting more, I did do a bit of teaching, teaching yeah. young composers and so on at various colleges, including the Royal Conservatory of Scotland up the road in Glasgow. Um, I have a role, a kind of part-time professorial role at the University of uh, St Andrews. Um, there is up there an institute for Theology, Imagination and the Arts, mm. which is in the Divinity Department, believe it or not. But I, I'm not a theologian, but I think they like to work with jobbing artists, um, composers and poets and so on. And uh, they're very interested in what we have to say about matters connected with our work as artists, of course, but how it might impinge on the wider world and how, yeah. how, how others might look. And I'm always interested in what People who are not necessarily musicians have to say about what we do as musicians. Yeah. And some find some find music, for example, a religious experience, and people talk about uh, music being the most spiritual of the arts. And well, what do they mean by that? And there's a PhD thesis in, in that itself. And I, I find myself uh, trying to explore or investigate, interrogate some of these uh, questions uh, through that role at, at the university. So I suppose I, 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 I've always like writing words and keeping ideas going. And if I hadn't been a musician, I would have found my way into the written word or certainly the written word rather than the spoken word. Uh, a lot of my friends are literary people. 
most of them, my closest friends are poets. Yeah. I'm, I'm not, I don't have that poetic instinct, but maybe if, if music hadn't been my life, I would have found that that could have been an avenue for me to explore. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? When I hit 60 uh, a few years ago, uh, I decided to try and sort my life out, as it were, <laughs> in the physical sense. Because um, right. there was, was quite a lot of focus on, on, on me and my music during 2019. And I thought I really need to be healthy to mm. not just conduct, but also do all the talking and et cetera, et cetera. So I decided to get to try and sort my health out. I went on a, uh, a diet. I lost a lot of weight. Uh, my eating changed. Uh, my drinking changed, didn't stop. Uh, just, <laughs> just changed from one thing to another. Um, but it meant that, you know, 10, well, decades of uh, eating curries indiscriminately came to a sudden <laughs> halt and I yeah. was a curry addict for years from my 20s right up until a few years ago yeah. uh, of, of the old traditional and not very healthy kind no vindaloos yeah. and madrasses and so on <laughs> rich sauces that are of no good to your health at all uh, all that's gone I probably haven't had a proper curry now for a couple of years so if it was the last night of the the, the world I would have a vindaloo <laughs> uh, washed down by a full bottle of Chateauneuf de Pap. Wonderful choice. Absolutely wonderful choice. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, exactly. Uh, I think Simon Halsey, all those, uh, way back in episode nine, said, you know, he, he'd given up all sorts of things, similar age as you, and he said, you know, he would have a full English fry up because he hadn't had one in years. Um, it would be something that he'd missed. And the same with you. Uh, I've had a wonderful hour, James, talking to you about all sorts of things and picking your brains about being a conductor and a composer at the same time. It's been a real joy, really fascinating. And I hope one day soon... Um, well, we won't, we, we won't have a curry, but maybe we could go you know, somewhere in between. Uh, it'd be lovely to meet up. Thank you. Yes, it's been great to meet you in this way, and uh, uh, good luck in everything that happens, both in the weeks and months ahead, but also in the years ahead in, in your life of music. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time... I chat with a conductor who's held title positions in Italy, Norway and his native Spain, as well as being the chief conductor of the BBC Philharmonic in Manchester for eight years. But until then, bye-bye. <laughs>